Welcome to Maker to Market. I'm your host, Amanda George, and on this show, we talk about how to bring things to market, things all about marketing, and also product development. I've got another guest with me here, but I'm going to let him introduce himself very briefly. Jamie, take it away. Let them know who you are and a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Jamie Beckland. I'm the president of a company called Context. And my background really in the product and product marketing space uh, started about 15 years ago. So I've been doing this for a while. I've seen a lot of different things. I'm excited to have a conversation. Awesome. Now, Jamie, you and I actually had a really interesting conversation, which is why I wanted to invite you onto the podcast, because we have a fun and interesting job of explaining the unexplainable called APIs or as the audience would like to know, an API stands for an automated programming interface. You know, it's elusive, it's exclusive, it's kind of like a myth and a legend when you talk to folks in the space, um, especially working in the last 15 years, you've probably been through the SaaS migration, the cloud migration, digital transformation story as much as I have. And the one thing that's still confusing for a lot of businesses is their API strategy. Uh, What is it about context that kind of drove you to, one, create an API business or kind of go down that route and focus on it? And two, you know, what really was your inspiration behind kind of focusing a little bit more on an area that's kind of like the the mythical beast of the tech space at this hour? Yeah. So APIs, I think when you're on the business side, it does seem a little bit mystical, right? That Anytime you talk about building an integration or anytime you talk about updating an application, it's like, oh, well, we'll just uh, make a change to the API and that'll solve it. And I became really curious about sort of what were the driving factors behind this rise of APIs. And I think when you mention cloud and you mention migration to SaaS and really mobile platforms, that to me was the rise of APIs, the importance of APIs. Because what we saw for the first time was that you're not just building a piece of software that you install from a CD or you download and then install on your local machine. You actually need an application that's going to be able to communicate over the internet and it's going to be able to call from a data center and then render something on a client application like on your desktop computer, a laptop, or your mobile device. And all all of that connective tissue, it happens over APIs. So when you start thinking about APIs in that, way, you start to see them everywhere. And that actually is the case now for 85% of all internet traffic is over APIs. So it's the majority of, of everything that we do online. My background previous to context was in the authentication and authorization space. And so I focused on building digital identity applications, which relied a lot on APIs. And when we started to see the proliferation of APIs, one thing that became really, really obvious was if you don't have the proper authentication, then anybody calling that API is going to be able to get any data they want off that API. That's a really dangerous place because as APIs become more important, the things that you can do with them also become more important. So we want to have proper controls um, and security over our APIs. And that was the issue that I saw that was really, really challenging for a lot of organizations and what led me to start Context. No, that's awesome. And I'm glad, you know, we're also kind of giving a little bit of a history lesson on how, you know, tech has sort of changed over time. You know, we're no longer using standalone desktop at-home machines. We've got laptops and mobile devices, which really has changed the game in terms of how we work and communicate with things. And, you know, as you mentioned too, API management can be really difficult as a strategy, especially for an organization. 
not only is it about pulling data and getting the right data from the APIs, but also the authentication, but it's also becoming a difficult strategy to manage because everybody has an API now. It doesn't matter who you work with, regardless of vendor or what department or what business system you're using, everyone has an API. It's also starting to see a shift in conversation of how do we actually manage the APIs that we currently have and are they actually necessary? Because I think we got to that in my career, I kind of saw this thing where it was like, oh my God, an API can solve all of this. That's all I need. Let's buy it. I need it. But do you actually need it? Is it actually useful for you? For example, for a lot of regulated industries, they may think that downloading an API or building something via an API is going to solve and you know an older problem when it could be just as simple as either switching your business network. It could be as simple as getting a new provider. But because they want to hold on to legacy systems, the in-between ground seems to be this API world. And it doesn't always solve the issue. It's a big overpromise and oversell if you think that that's going to solve it. You know, what's your take on, on a lot of customer requests when they come to talk to you about APIs? Yeah, I think it's a really important point that in order to understand whether an API really is the solution to your problem, you have to be clear about what the problem is. And everything in technology, there's a lot of ways to solve the problem as long as you can define it well. And so oftentimes, like you're saying, you know, sometimes changing a network or changing an underlying application is going to resolve an issue, especially around performance, right? So if you're thinking about latency or you know time to live or the reliability of your application, you're going to see some variation across multiple networks. Like if you call the same application from an AWS cloud in Virginia, which is the largest uh, AWS data center, and then you call that same uh, application from let's say a Google Cloud in Singapore, you're going to get a different response time, different latency, different performance. So sometimes making network tweaks can really help improve the performance of an application. And a lot of the time, if you're adding additional APIs to expose legacy microservices, that sort of thing, you run the risk of introducing security risks. So everything is a trade-off here, right? And yep. if you if you bring, you know, an API is like a, a Swiss army knife in a lot of ways, and you have to make sure you're pulling the right tool out of the Swiss Army knife, because if you just try to pull all the tools out, then none of them are actually functional. No, and I love the analogy because you're absolutely right. They really are like a Swiss knife, Swiss knife especially as we kind of enter the the AI space and the AI world that we're about to to embark on. There's a lot of overpromise, and it kind of feels like a trend, to be honest. I don't know about you, but in the last 15 years, it's like everything tech-related has become this new fad and trend that we're all obsessed with. Instead of things like Pokemon cards and Pogs growing up, I just find myself looking at content where I'm like, okay, this trend is not making sense, but cool. You know, we're entering the AI era and you're seeing a lot of conversation as how AI can enhance a lot of those capabilities. Where do you see opportunities for AI and APIs to kind of work together? You know, are you seeing any winning strategies in the marketplace today or anyone that you've seen actually navigate that narrative properly? Yeah, I mean, I do agree with you that there's a lot of what we just need an AI story. So let's just go ahead and say that we have an AI assistant, you know, somewhere in the back end, or we're going to layer on some AI feature into our existing application. So I think it's clear that there's a lot of uh, positioning around AI in a lot of existing applications. But there are a couple of very concrete questions that application owners need to answer for themselves around AI functionality. 
The first is, and actually OpenAI came out with an update to their terms and conditions just this year, earlier this year. And what they said was that if you integrate with ChatGPT or any of our services over an API, then we're not going to use the data that you share with us for training the AI model itself. And that is a huge distinction that every business needs to think about because your proprietary business data is the thing that gives you strategic advantage. And so if you share that data with a large language model that you don't control, and they take that data that you have given it over your API, and then they consume it for their own training, what you're doing is you're making you know, your proprietary data part of that large language model that nobody really fully understands you know, how it works. So that's one area that I would always recommend caution when you're thinking about an AI strategy is to make sure that whatever AI you're deploying, you maintain control and access of the data that you're integrated, even if it's over APIs. Now, the second question is, what does the AI do with the data that you've integrated over APIs in order to generate its response? And here we see basically non-existent or very poorly constructed security, right? So at HackerCon this year, there was a team that did an experiment and they had an API that integrated into a customer database and they were interacting with an AI chatbot using that API. And what they told the AI was, you're going to look at a database of customer information and there's a field in that database and it's called credit card. And I want you to understand that when you see that field, that is the name of the customer. So now that we've set these parameters, let me ask you as the AI, you know, what is a list of all of my customer names? And the AI responded with a list of credit card numbers, right? I mean, this is a very basic missing security configuration that would allow the AI to expose certain data from within that application. And it's because there's not the proper security controls over that API that was integrated. No, and the audience can't see my face, but honestly, I am shocked to hear that someone did that because that is security training one-on-one do not do. Like, you know that this thing is unstructured. You know how unsafe it is. We've all done security training to some degree. Someone should have been there to say, you can't do this. Like, this is live information. This is a test model. Someone should have intervened, which goes to my next question, because you mentioned this a little bit earlier, too. And it's something that I've been thinking about in the background. You know, you mentioned that we have a positioning statement out there about AI. There's a difference between using AI and then talking about it and then how it's actually implemented. And I think that narrative got lost. Because if you look at most businesses and the way that they structure data internally, in order for them to leverage something like AI, most companies are not going to have the right data structure in place to get those prompts going. In your example with the credit card information, the name of a credit card, why would you do the credit card name? Like that's kind of dangerous. We should have been anonymizing the data first, using PII protection in place before we actually got the AI bot to train so that A, it does not recognize and release the PII data. Why do you need to know my name? I know it's a chatbot and it wants to feel personalized. However, for the training purposes, it should have been anonymized data before we actually got to that point, which then goes into the structure of how most organizations actually keep their data. And this is where things get funky because regardless of whether you're using an API 
or AI, you know, when you're talking to someone and they want to use an API to connect to the customer database and do all these magical things with marketing and sales data and customer relationship data, you got three different data sets with three very different naming conventions. They don't talk to each other. So your data structure is already messy to begin with. And then you want to layer AI into that. We're not ready for that. We can barely get the APIs to talk to each other based on the way that your data is structured in three different systems and three different buckets. So, you know, ethically, where do we go from here? Because I think the AI conversation is going to start to expose, in some ways, our own gaps and our own data sets. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think that's really prescient uh, because I think that the data teams within enterprise organizations have spent, you know, the better part of at least the last, you know, five years, sometimes longer, uh, just working at getting a consolidated understanding in the data lake of all the data assets, making sure that the plumbing is set up so all the data is going to one place. And the idea is that, you know, if we can just get all the data in one place, then we can start asking really interesting questions. We can start doing analysis from multiple parts of the business all at the same time. I think that that's a challenging proposition to move at the speed of the customer experience, right? And that's where a lot of the data teams, they do a very effective job at creating, you know, large scale insights from a business analytics perspective, but they don't have an effective mechanism to do real time on demand analysis and results in outcome processing that a salesperson can use in the middle of an existing call or a customer can use in a dashboard or in a tool that they, you know, that they are leveraging on a day-to-day basis. And that's a little bit of the promise of, of AI is that AI is going to be able to bridge that gap a little bit and provide some real-time responsiveness. Obviously, you know, the hallucination problem is real, but, you know, even apart from that, you're talking about ethics. I mean, a lot of the rule sets and the functionality for what data should be exposed from a data lake to certain applications, to certain front-end systems, to cer- even to certain users internally is pretty poorly articulated. And I think the solution to that problem is really starting to understand and track the consents and the source and the use of the data assets that you're collecting. Today, even if you have a consent management tool, a lot of the time, the consents that you're collecting about how the data can be used, it stays relatively isolated. And it certainly is not used in real-time decision-making about what applications can do with the data that they have exposure to. And I think we need some infrastructure on top of APIs that track that kind of information so that the permissioning around the data that we're exposing is leveraged when those real-time decisions are being made. You know, that's not a solution that a lot of teams are going to be able to implement in 30 days or less, but we need to start collecting that information and then exposing it on the API so it can be consumed. No, and I love that response because it's something people don't think about as well, because we're starting to see a lot more connectivity between departments needing access to more information. For example, I'm in product marketing, but I still have to look at sales data and I also look at customer, you know, relationship or customer success data as well, in addition to support data to help me understand the success of a product launch. That's four different departments of four different completely data sets sitting in four different data lakes that I now have to manually compile and understand myself. Where AI could help is, again, 
We already have things like Power BI, we have Tableau. If I could get those APIs to pull in the right data and transform it the right way for my needs, that's a much more fruitful conversation where I think AI and APIs could be used. But unfortunately, data lake conversations are not exactly fruitful when it comes to other departments because we know what we need. We just don't really see who else needs it. And I think we're starting to break down those silos, which is super cool. But what do you think are going to be some of the most interesting challenges that salespeople are going to face when trying to navigate the conversations around API management as well as AI in the future? Because those two are are starting to kind of go hand in hand in a lot of those conversations that we're seeing in the market today. Yeah. So, well, let me just say one thing on uh, the product marketing and product management perspective, which (laughs) is like we living in the product world. I mean, it is the Stretch Armstrong role in any organization, right? I mean, so that comfort and the fluency in managing multiple systems that, you know, that are appropriate for the respective teams that you have to integrate with. I, I just don't see a way that that goes away for product people because the pace of the questions and the investigation that we need to do, it moves so much faster than our systems and tools can keep up. So, you know, I'm mm-hmm. hopeful that there's a but there's a an end game here that you know that gives us all that data exposed very clearly and concisely but my guess is that consumer behavior customer behavior it's going to move faster than the analytics can keep up with it in the integration so i think that it still takes you know smart curious product people that are asking questions that don't have a, a template and then go, go off and investigate those answers on their own so i mean i think that there still is a role for bringing critical thinking to to product as a discipline. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just to add to your point, we've seen, everyone has seen the Salesforce, Dreamforce sort of demos of customer success reps bubbling up the right information. The thing is that you can bubble up as much information as you need. Again, that critical thinking is going to come into place. I recently had a really bad experience with Samsung's customer service to the point where they probably heard the recording anyways, where I told the customer service rep, I was like, listen, I know it's not your job to know all the details of X, Y, and Z. However, you do understand that I spent a good amount of money on said product and I am pissed that it's delivered broken. So what are we going to do about it? And even though I could tell he's got bubbled responses, again, critical thinking could have been put into place here. If you've already asked me the first three questions that came up in that prompt that just showed up on your screen, like, don't ask me again. That was where your critical thinking going to come in and be like, you know what? This customer already asked, already answered this question and I know the answer. Cool. But if you were to ask it again, critical thinking, sorry, I know you already answered this, but let me just confirm, ask the question again. It's just a lack of training. And I think, you know, AI is posing this uh, fear of replacing jobs. It's not replacing anything. It's just helping you. Your critical thinking needs to come into place. So yeah, that was exactly. my, my two cents. <laughs> no, I think I think it's a great point because the other piece around the customer service experience, customer support experience, is that you have customers with different needs and different levels of fluency and being able to interpret where this, I mean, I know that there's customers, you know, because I've talked with them that that need handholding to the level of, okay, now we're going to need to click on the red button and open up this window. And you're walking them through step by step how to navigate a a system and then eventually gets to the point where you're like, okay, press the power button on your computer. That's that's the issue that you're having. (laughs) The computer's not turned on. Right. We've all been there. But there are, you know, a smaller subset of customers that 
you know, can have a fluent, reasonably fluent technical conversation. And you want to be able to get them an answer quickly too, because it leaves you more time to handhold, you know, where you need to. So from a customer support efficiency standpoint, being able to triage some of those questions for somebody who has high fluency like you, that's another benefit or bonus. And so there's maybe there's some leveling questions in the script, you know, that can help quickly gauge, you know, what's the level of technical fluency and competence. But, you know, if you are talking to somebody with high fluency and they're telling you, you know, my software application isn't working, or I have this hardware device that you mailed me and I've tried to power it on and it doesn't work. We should be able to quickly get to the point where we understand, okay, this is somebody who knows what they're talking about. And, you know, we can treat them seriously and triage their issue at a higher level. I don't think we're that far away from being able to understand the customer history from the data that we have and leverage that over an API to be able to tell a customer service rep, you know, use script number three, because that's what's appropriate for this person. That should be very possible. Absolutely, because I'll be honest, I have uh, seen some interesting real life examples of explanations as to why an application might not work. I'll give, this one's pretty funny. I own a Volvo and I went to get my car serviced and there is a course, every car maker now has an application that goes with the car. iCloud had nothing to do with the Volvo app and I saw the rep inside the service center try to help an elderly customer by saying that they needed to sign out of their iCloud, re-sign in to get the Volvo app to start their car. I'm like, that's two different issues, two separate Mm -hmm. systems, not the right answer. And part of me sat there and I was like, I could jump in and help, but I don't want to. I'm like, you know what? I'm sorry. I don't work for Volvo. I'm not going to say anything. Second of all, I don't want to be someone else's IT support in an environment where I just want to get my car service and leave. So I'm also seeing just, you know, it, it just poses the, I think with the introduction of AI and, you know, making smarter decisions and bubbling it up, I think it also poses the question as to how to also change the customer service reps sort of job. Your job is still going to be answering questions for the customer. You're going to have to also educate yourself a little bit because if I'm, you know, another prime example, auto insurance, they want you to download an app for the good driving behavior so you can get 10% off. Not one person. And I love questioning them just because I can. And I'm one of those idiots that will do this. But I love asking them all the questions of, okay, what about this? What about this? What about my data? How about that? Can you answer this? Are you going to let me talk to your customer uh, security or your chief security officer? No? Okay, then I don't want it. And, you know, of course, the reading off a script, well, it's safe. You telling me it's safe doesn't always mean that it's safe. What do I get out of this? How does the app differentiate between when I'm actually driving the vehicle versus when I'm a passenger? No one has explained that one to me nor has given me a a valid explanation for it. I don't want it. Sorry. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of these incentives for sort of opting into more data sharing and more analytics, a lot of those are incentives that don't make sense on their face, right? So like you're talking about connected cars and there's a lot of you know features in, in connected cars that are being turned into subscriptions, right? So the API has to call out to the server, see if your subscription is valid before it'll turn on your heated seats or your GPS or, or whatever the feature is. I think it's a really hard consumer value proposition to convert something that you used to get for free into something that is paid on a monthly subscription. Now, mm-hmm. does that mean that there's that there's no opportunity for new subscription services? 
No, absolutely not. I think GM is doing a good job with Super Cruise. You know, that's a subscription service for automated highway driving. And obviously, as more and more highways get onboarded, you know, the value of that service grows. And that's appropriate to be able to, you know, use an API call back and say, you know, are you an active customer right now? So I think it's incumbent on a lot of the connected car manufacturers to think through the value exchange. Putting heated seats into a car is a one-time cost. Something that I use to navigate on long road trips, and I take a long road trip every couple of weeks, that obviously is a real-time service that has additional value to it. So, I mean, I think it, it re brings up a lot of questions around what service are we delivering? Are we delivering you know, a vehicle or are we a transportation solution? And it allows you to sort of start to think bigger about the value proposition for your own company. Now, that being said, you know, uh, I will say that connected cars have literally the worst privacy policies of any hardware or software application you will ever see. It's it's, it's really terrifying that le- the level of, I mean, their initial default click wrap EULAs include permissions for them to you know, record you inside the cabin and then use those recordings for a whole variety of purposes, which may be appropriate or may not, because, you know, cars are part of our culture and we do a lot of cars that, you know, I don't necessarily want to be used for any kind of training. (laughs) So things like that, you know, as technology becomes more and more available, my other concern as, as a female is the safety around it behind me. So same thing with the driving apps. I don't care what insurance company it is. You can't guarantee me anything on the data that you're collecting, not collecting, collecting where it's being used, where it's not being used, and who actually is buying this third-party data. I don't have control on your third-party vendors. I don't want them to have access to it. Hence why I just say, no, I don't want it, period. And goes back to the service value. What value does it really provide me as the end user? It's great for the business, not for me as the end user. Am I willing to give you that data? In addition to you reselling it? No, because I right now the other thing is data protection from the consumer level. It's just not there. We're all thinking about it at the business level, which is great. But from the consumer, as our lives are becoming more digital, whether you're using smart devices that, you know, smart connected car, smart connected devices in your home, appliances are now becoming smart connected. Your TV can be connected. Anything you purchase can be connected. But what's the safety of that? Because you're also seeing, and I don't know how common this is outside of North America, but there are a number of cases of smart connected homes. Once the owner sells the home and a new owner takes over, they don't wipe the data. So your existing data, your entire life was captured via these systems. The next family that purchases it actually can access all this if they wanted to. Now, what's going to happen with that information? So little things like that. I mean, as cool as it is, it's also scary. (laughs) Yeah, that, it happens in the in the opposite direction too, right? So if you sell your home and you have a connected lock system, what is the cultural context to make sure that I have logged out and decommissioned my ability to open the front door of that home? So mm-hmm. if I'm a seller and I move out, uh, you know, the new buyer moves in, I still might be able to get into that house, you know. So it it can happen in both directions, and I think our Part of it is, you know, our cultural expectations of each other, but a lot of it has to be directed by the people who understand how these systems are built. There's no way to, I mean, I think Amazon does a pretty good job with their Echo product set of allowing you to 
sell that device to uh, you know somebody on you know Craigslist or on Facebook Marketplace, and then the wipe and reset process um, is is pretty robust, and it's going to re- wipe all that history, and they do a pretty good job of it. But not every company has that same level of protections, and I think you know it's one of those situations where large tech companies or large companies in general have an inherent advantage to be able to build applications and systems that are more secure. And as a result, they gain increasing consumer trust. And as a result, you know, they get even larger, right? So it's sort of that um, winner take most mentality. But the thing you mentioned with security is if we didn't have a bunch of real world examples, you know, like Peloton leaking, you know, your age and your weight and how often you exercise, like um, (laughs) Optus having a breach where they had to reissue 10 million passports, you know, because passport information was part of what they collected. If we didn't have those breaches in the real world, I think people would have more trust. But it's because the business use cases for APIs have gotten ahead of the privacy and security use cases uh, that were in the situation. I mean, I understand how it happened, right? I mean, 10 years ago, it was like, we're moving to platforms, we're moving to mobile, we're moving to cloud, we need to make our applications much more flexible as fast as possible. And the product owners made reasonable business trade-offs to say, we're going to get this functionality out the door, and then we're going to come back later, and we're going to make sure that it's hardened and secure, scalable, performant, highly compliant, and all of that. And, and sometimes the second step never happened. The other thing that happens is that engineering teams, they, they go in to fix a bug real quick, and they push a code update, and then you start to see API drift. So now you run the risk that you're introducing regressions without the right visibility as to what the trade-off is, right? And so it's Mark Zuckerberg had, you know, the old motto for Facebook was move fast and break things. And he changed that motto, I think it was 2014, where he started saying move fast with stable infrastructure. And it Mm -hmm. was a big shift in their culture, right? From, you know, we want to get, we want to win the consumer, we want to win, you know, the market. And so we want to get this functionality out as fast as possible to, you know, people really rely on us to manage significant aspects of their life. And we have to treat that with respect and trust. It's a journey that every organization needs to go through in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And you you actually brought up an interesting point there too, around sort of the security management being forgotten. One other thing that is becoming my favorite thing to monitor on the internet is the amount of people that now have become API self-proclaimed experts that every time a service goes down on the internet must be someone's API. (laughs) Which one? Since you're the expert, let me know. And, you know, I love watching the reverse engineers. It's like, oh, well, no. And it's like, no, it could have been a whole server outage somewhere that probably went down temporarily. Like there's so many endpoints that could have gone down. It's not just an API, but because people now are familiar with the term API, they're utilizing it. So they're like, oh, you know, Facebook's API went down. That's why Facebook isn't up right now. Sure. Let's all go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now you've got all these self-proclaimed experts that now apparently know how your services work better than you do. So that's always the interesting thing on the internet to kind of monitor. It's actually a really interesting question because when you start to unpack where APIs can go wrong, there's actually a lot of different places, you know, mm-hmm. and it's one of the challenging things for teams that actually do care about performance and reliability. And it's it's part of what has driven the merger for with Context and API Metrics, which is a performance and reliability company. So it's been cool to see those use cases start to emerge where 
if you get a report, an early report saying, we think that there's an issue with this API or this application, how quickly can you triage and investigate it? And the answer is like, you know, if you have the right setup, you can triage it pretty quickly. But if you don't, it's um, it can be a real time suck to dig into the logs to investigate where those issues are happening. Because just to your point, sometimes it can be a certain node on a certain server or a certain cloud provider or a certain CDN, and that's causing a lot of latency. And that only affects 7% of your user base. But that 7% of your user base might be highly valuable or located in an area that you care a lot about. Or it may happen only at certain times of day, right? And that's because certain of the um, virtual agents or hosting providers that you're working with, you know, have applications that are rebooting or going through their own maintenance process, right? So mm-hmm. triaging and investigating all of the internet down to where the users are actually seeing issues, it's a rougher question, you know, than a lot of teams give credit to. But once you have sort of a broad base of uh, visibility, then triaging those issues becomes really easy. So, you know, if you're deployed on 100 data centers and you can see the variation between multiple cloud providers, you can drill into problem areas really, really quickly. No, and I love that because we went from going to everyone wants to buy a SaaS product or a cloud solution. We're scared of the cloud to now, okay, now we got arms wrapped around the cloud. Let's embrace it. So now let's go to API management where it's still the wild, wild west. And the strategy just really hasn't changed. And, you know, we've talked about the security measures behind it. We've talked about the implementation and things that could go wrong around an API implementation there as well. There are so many things that can go wrong with an API strategy. It's just really funny. And anyone who's had a conversation with any client, you know, they all get excited about API conversations. But is it realistic? Apart from just the setup and the implementation, it also comes down to cost. You know, when you're looking and you've got, especially now with today's ecosystems and the ecosystems growing as large as they are, you're not looking at a contained Microsoft 365 deployment. We're using only M65, you know, systems. Everything is Microsoft based. We're all in the same ecosystems. The ecosystems actually are now becoming very mishmash. I could have a collection of Microsoft products in addition to SAP products, to maybe some Google products. So now I got to make all of these things talk. And it really does come down to, are we actually, you know, building a winning strategy here? Because everybody wants to just take the API to like, oh, well, I want to just pass the data from this system to that system. Why? What benefit does it get? One of the things that I think that's very interesting about the AI conversation as we move forward is the value of historical data being brought over to the LLMs. So large language models for those that don't know what that means. But essentially, if you are going to give permission via an API for someone to manage and use that data, APIs are not cheap to begin with. Does it also make sense to bring over all the historical data for analysis to now use via AI? What value does it provide? Because I'm finding that there's the regulatory pieces where it's mandatory to have historical data kept for X amount of years. But what value and insights can you get from it that will actually be needed to pass through? And that's a conversation I think that's just starting to happen because what value does the older data have? For certain cases, it makes sense. For others, it doesn't. For example, you know, we're talking about customer service reps. If they had the seven-year historical data on all purchases made from Samsung, let's say that I've made in the last seven years, what about that's going to help you in your job? I'm not sure. I think it's a great question. I think the half-life of data is shortening, right? And part of that is because 
we're doing as users is changing. And part of it is because the way that we're doing it is changing. Like, honestly, I'm not sure how valuable uh, user data is pre-pandemic because so many of our systems, tools, business process, and the way that we work changed as a result of the pandemic. And mm-hmm. we sort of entered an area era of a new normal. In that context, you know, data that's more than three years old that you're trying to generate customer insights from, I'm not sure how valuable the insights are going to be, you know? I mean, if you're trying to predict, okay, does this user have a propensity to upgrade or spend more with us? Is this somebody that we should, you know, try to capture before they churn? You know, if you're trying to make decisions about how your product is being used based on, you know, historical data, you know, I think it's specious. I mean, certainly yeah. in some environments, right? But if you're marketing or uh, have use a user base that's under the age of 18, like those people are literally the cohort is different every five years. So any data more than five years old is going to be useless to you. <laughs> I mean, that's just the reality. If you're building anything for anyone under the age of 18, historical data is not going to mean anything because fads and trends and behaviors change every week for that cohort. So it doesn't make sense. And I think, you know, some of the interesting things too that have come out of this show particularly is are we designing, is tech actually helpful for the human? And I think there's also a little shift in, in human design being brought into a lot of these conversations because, you know, you and I have probably been through some sales process where we've all cursed the the process or flows we have to follow in a system that don't make sense for my day-to-day activity. And, you know, this notion of being so overly complicated and process oriented but not looking at the human approach is one where I think AI also has the opportunity to, to bridge some of those gaps. Because if there are things that can automate my day, for example, you know, you look at grocery store, if me just putting the apples on the machine and it automatically weighs it and prices it for me is a great use of AI right there. That's one less thing I have to do when self, when going through self-checkout. Like the fact that I have to actually go in and type it on the screen myself is a pain. I don't want to do that. Neither does the cashier. That's an automated process there that could actually improve my life by not having to type in every single piece of produce by putting it on the scale. I think there's opportunity to, to kind of enhance those processes. But in terms of, of longevity of APIs, you know, what tips and tricks do you have for enterprise customers out there who are trying to build a winning strategy around their API management? Yeah, I, I mean, I think a very natural progression for a lot of enterprises is to build internal services using APIs first, right? So if you have an end user or customer facing application, it's probably built on, you know, four to 15 independent internal services that get leveraged up with some additional UI to create that customer experience. I think it's worth looking at each one of those internal services and applications and seeing where else that could be uh, leveraged or if that could be spun out into its own customer-facing product. I mean, this is not a new strategy. It's the AWS strategy where they looked at what they needed to run their e-commerce business and they built applications and services and then exposed those applications and services to other users you know, outside of their infrastructure. But I think it's worth that that activity because it'll reveal some of the common elements that all of your customers need across multiple applications. And it helps you figure out which services are really critical. Now, the caveat I'll say is that when you do that exercise, 
it's important to acknowledge that a lot of the security requirements for internal APIs and internal applications rely on people being inside the network or inside the organization and the roles and responsibilities are managed you know, at the network level or the organization level. So when you expose those APIs externally, you do need to go through an audit process to make sure that that appropriate authorization scopes are detailed um, in the API spec. So it's a change in spec a lot of the time, but it can open a whole new market category for you. No, absolutely. Jamie, this has been one of the most fruitful conversations and also one of the most uh, mythical conversations I'm going to have around APIs on this show. But I do want to thank you for coming on and, and talking to you know the audience and myself about what an API is, what a winning strategy looks like, and just what on earth is this legend that we all hear about or this myth, if we want to call it that. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. 